in the golden age of movies, uh, opening credits uh, were a special thing. Uh, They served as sort of a preview of the thrills and the joys that were to come. Opening credits revealed to you twists and and turns and even heights of excitement in the music themselves. Uh, They promised satisfaction. I remember some 23-odd years ago when I became a Star Wars fan for the first time. It happened within the first seconds of sitting in that theater seat and listening to John Williams' fanfare thumbing through my back and through the seat back of the theater. Uh, Now, a story of a weeping woman in 1 Samuel 1 and 2 might seem like an odd way uh, to start a story about battles, giants, coups, sword play and God's move to place a human king on his earthly throne in fulfillment of his Abrahamic covenant, it might seem strange uh, unless you think about it as opening credits to coming attractions and a movie to come. Um, God is illustrating for us uh, the lessons he's going to hammer home for us through the rest of this book. So what are the opening credits, so to speak, of First and Second Samuel? Well, we find a, a weeping woman in Shiloh. Uh, she's got a problem. And if you turn to First Samuel 1, you will see in verse 7, uh, she is weeping and she is refusing to eat. In, in some ways, her problems are outside of her control. As we will see, she lives in a horrible, uh, godless historical context. Uh, There are sinners around her, exasperating and inflicting further wounds on her problem. There is leadership above her that is failing her. And in some ways, there is her own sin exasperating her problem as well. Uh, What is the problem? What is the lesson that we learn in these opening credits that that wets our whistle, so to speak, for, for coming things. Well, let's, let's let the story unfold and, and see what the Lord has to tell us through his word. First Samuel 1, beginning in verse 1, starts this way. There was a certain man of uh, Ramathim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerham, uh, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Eph. And and we see here already, uh, this man is from a city, uh, Ramath uh, Zophim is actually probably the official title for the city of Ramah. It really means just two hills, probably indicates that this city was on one of those hills. Um, And uh, Elkanah here we see, we're introduced to this certain man, he is a man of genealogy, which always bores us and thrills Israelites. I mean, just think about it this way, it's kind of like if you're reading a newspaper, you know, uh, the LA Times or something, or the Sacramento Bee or something like that, and, and you see Bakersfield come up, oh, I know people here, this is interesting, that's kind of what genealogies are for Israelites, uh, and, and people who know genealogies in Israel probably would recognize instantly, uh, especially the readers of this text, uh, that first 
Chronicles 6, 33 and 34 speaks about this man and his line. Actually, he is a man of priestly stock. The, the Korathites will eventually take up key positions in the temple. This man is important to history. And But we move on in our text, and we see in verse 2, he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. Uh, This is the narrator's not-so-subtle way of telling you, not all was pleasant in Two Hills, Israel, that day. Uh, Maybe if you were reading through the Bible straight, and and you would have just plowed and slugged your way through the book of Judges. Oh, it was hard. It was difficult. Every page is more and more misery. And then you're thinking as you turn the page over to 1 Samuel, finally I get into some good things, some happy things, some, some, some positive messages. And you come here and you're not, you're not only just, you're just two verses into 1 Samuel and already, oh, here we go again. We have another Levite doing stupid things, two wives, oh my word, when is this going to end? And this is the place where we need to um, start thinking. Uh, This is where I also would um, direct you, if you're taking notes, to put down your first heading for our story. Uh, We have, number one, uh, people that interact with Hannah in this story. The first first person is a bitter rival, a a bitter rival. Uh, Verse 2, there's two wives, two wives of this leading man who has this prominent heritage. Um, and, and here we have a, an instance, once again, in the Bible of uh, polygamy. And if you haven't read the Bible before, spoiler alert, it never turns out very well. Uh, why in the world does God start his kingdom plan? Because that's what 1 Samuel is about, his kingdom plan through a guy like this. Well, when you, when you read through the Bible, you quickly realize it's not very sanitized. It paints human lives and problems uh, under sin accurately. Sometimes it is painfully inspired. Oh, that is too true. And sometimes we we shudder. How could God use a family like this? And, And actually, I think the Bible is very helpful and very pastoral in this way. It surprises us again and again, does it not, how God in his grace and in his mercy actually condescends to make promises of hope and salvation to real sin-stained people in in a real sin-stained world. This is encouraging, very encouraging. Now, let's just go through it really quick. What is uh, polygamy? The Bible paints a consistent picture of polygamy. Uh, It's not a good idea, as I said before, and, and... but surprisingly enough, in the Old Testament, um, a little bit to our dissatisfaction, the, the Bible never explicitly condemns it. Uh, but that being said, it, never, it definitely never approves of it either. Um, God instead chooses the route of examples. Examples. This is not a good idea. This is a great way to ruin your life, uh, so to speak. Kind of like how you might not tell your son, uh, don't smoke. You might, but you might find it a lot more effective to take your son to the local hospital and show him um, bed after bed after bed of smoking's victims. It's, it's a little bit more dramatic. 
And, and even when we get to the New Testament, we actually see polygamy a little bit more clearly condemned as the, the picture of marriage becomes uh, more prominent and clear of Christ in the church. And we even see that, hey, even having two women in your heart is sin against God. Uh, so why did polygamy happen in the Old Testament? Well, surprise, surprise, after that, uh, that huge explanation, I should also tell you that polygamy actually really wasn't that popular in ancient times. Uh, people apparently didn't need much revelation to tell them that it wasn't a good idea. For one, I mean, it took a lot more money to support multiple wives and multiple families. Yeah. And you obviously had this problem. Two wives in the same house fighting each other and me? Do I want that? No. So why then did Elkanah do it? Well, there was lots of reasons. Uh, more wives could increase your wealth and prestige. More wives could produce more children, which could produce more, you know, people to work in the family business. Um, but most likely, a second wife could solve the problem that the first wife had, which was bearing children. And that children were important. Um, your family was kind of like your, your nursing home. If you didn't have any family, no one would take care of you. Your family was your inheritance. Uh, kings lost vast wealth because they had no inheritors. And a family line also kind of um, continued your line. You, you've already seen with Elkanah that he has a line, and if it ends with him, that'll be horrible. And we see that this is actually, in fact, a problem with Hannah. We finished verse 2. Uh, but Hannah had no children. Hannah was not producing that heir that Elkanah wanted so much. Uh, and at least in her social context, Hannah was worthless. In, in ancient Near East times, barren women were ostracized. Maybe not physically outcasts, but they were socially inferior. And in Israel, I mean, God's word says in Psalm 127, 3 through 5, the children are a blessing from the Lord. So what does it mean if you don't have any? Well, maybe God doesn't like you as much. And as we move down through the text in verse 6, we see the, the strife that is happening between Hannah and this bitter rival. Verse 6 says, Her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. We see here that Hannah isn't the only one struggling with a problem. Just because Penina uh, has children does not mean she is happy. Actually, she is a very bitter person. Judging by the order that these two women are introduced to us in verse 2, we get the, the suspicion that Penina was the second wife brought on because Hannah wasn't producing. And, and even though she had all of these kids, she was struggling in her heart with bitterness against Hannah. And as you know about bitter people, bitter people are never happy until you become as bitter as they are. Matter of fact, we, we see in verse 6, er, just referring to her as her rival, Penina's name is never again used in this text. She's just the rival in Hannah's mind. Uh, now, now, that being said, both of these women uh, garner my compassion. 
with the, the eyes of Genesis 2, I'm saying this is not a good thing. I, I feel sorry for both Penina and Hannah. And then nobody's going to be a winner in this situation. This is not right. This is not good. But I also want to tell you that both women own a part of their problem. This bitterness that they have, this irritation towards each other. Uh, both women, yes, have ex external circumstances beyond their control, but both women are using their circumstances as an excuse to sin. What was Penina's sin? Well, she lashed out bitterly against Hannah, reminding Hannah of her worthlessness over and over and over again. One of my favorite commentators on 1 Samuel is Del Ralph Davies. Uh, he he uh, uses a little imagination and gives us what the picture of Penina's side of the table looked like at family gatherings. And Penina says, uh, now, do all you children have food? Uh, dear me, there, there are so many of you, it's hard to keep track. And then a little Penina-ite um, answers, Mommy, uh, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. Uh, what did you say, dear? I, I said Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. Miss Hannah? Oh, oh, yes, that's right. She doesn't have any children. D doesn't she want children? Oh, yes, she wants children very, very much. Uh, wouldn't you say so, Hannah? Don't you wish you had children, too? Doesn't Daddy want Miss Hannah to have kids? Oh, certainly he does. But Miss Hannah keeps disappointing him. She can't. Why not? Why? Because God won't let her. Doesn't God like Miss Hannah? Well, I don't know. What do you think? Oh, by the way, uh, Hannah, did I tell you uh, that I'm pregnant again? You think you'll ever be pregnant, Hannah? That's Penina's sin. What's Hannah's side of this sin? We need to be careful here. We may be reading in a little bit in the white spaces in our Bible, but, but I don't think Penina is the sole sinner here. Um, the, the verb there, verse 6, her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, suggests that Penina caused Hannah to enter into a state of bitterness and irritation. Both women are bitter. Both women hate one another. Penina is Hannah's rival and nothing else. She hates her. Uh, when the text says that uh, Hannah was provoked by Penina, it doesn't say uh, what Hannah was provoked to do, but I'm guessing uh, we can take a, a stab at what it doesn't mean. I'm almost certain that it doesn't mean that Hannah was provoked to love and good works towards Penina, like Hebrews 10.24 would argue. And I'm almost pretty sure it wasn't heap, she wasn't heaping on Penina, burning coals of love and grace, like Romans 13.21 would say. I'm pretty sure she had literal coals in mind when she thought about coals. Um, 
I'm also, I'm almost also certain because I, I actually know myself that probably every time Hannah got her, her, her portion from Elkanah, she probably swelled up with pride. She did get a double portion, our text says. She, she got special treatment from him. And maybe it was for a short period. Even though she didn't have a child, she did have one thing that Penina didn't have, the guy. And I'm pretty sure she found temporary joy in the sight of that woman standing over there at a distance, surrounded by her herd of children, glowering in envy and helplessness. I'm sure she found particular joy from that. And she probably even felt justified in this uh, malicious thinking. I'm the victim here, she probably would think. Yes, both women uh, aggravated their situation by sin. Hannah, by bitter anger and irritation. Penina, by uh, provocation and malicious talk. Now, what we need to remember about sin is it never solves the problem. And regardless of how much temporary joy Hannah got from those thoughts, they never lasted. Penina, her words never satisfied her. Both women were bitter. And in verse 7, we see the result. So it went by year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Similar to how if maybe you were feeling lousy one Thanksgiving and you decided to skip the family feast, that would cause a stir. Just don't feel like it anymore. Hannah doesn't want to go on anymore. She's done with this life. And this actually leads us to our next heading, our next exasperator of Hannah's pain. We find ourselves face-to-face with a bumbling husband. A bumbling husband. Now, you might be surprised. Bumbling? Is that really the best your thesaurus can do, David? Bumbling? I can do better than that. How about... um, a real jerk of a husband, or, or maybe a selfish imbecile of a husband, or the best one, how about the real cause of all of Hannah's problems, husband? That, that's the better title for your heading, David. A bumbling husband, really? Well, surprise, surprise, Okana is actually a good and godly man. Read what I skipped, verse 3. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, uh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all of her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. What, what were... Elkanah's merits. Well, he was good. He was generous to both of his wife. And notice, he was generous especially and exceptionally to his barren wife. This wouldn't be the response of an ordinary man. Hannah was his problem wife. But notice he was also godly. Year by year he went up to the feast of the Lord. This might have been referring to a specific feast, like the feast that they had at the end of every harvest time, the Feast of Booths, kind of like that Thanksgiving celebration we were talking about. It might have just been a separate thing. But what we see, Elkanah is faithful to the Lord his God. And notice, 
he goes, when he goes to this feast, he goes to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. This is the first time this title that we're so familiar with appears in the, the Old Testament. Lord of hosts, the Lord of Sabaoth. That's, that's the, the phrase that we hear in uh, Martin Luther's song, um, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It's not the Lord of the Sabbath, it's the Lord of hosts. It, it refers to God's rule and reign that extends over every army, both in heaven and on earth. He has total resources. He has all control, all power. This is who Elkanah is going to every single year. He has faith in the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts. And we'll see later that when Hannah prays, she uses this same title to refer to the Lord. Elkanah is good and godly, and he's teaching his family about this God that he worships year by year. And we find, in spite of Hannah's condition, that he loves her. He gives her a generous portion. He's sensitive to her. He's caring to her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And this is all particularly noteworthy considering the times that he lived in. I mean, if you were to, so to speak, open up your daily uh, Israeli times, these would be the headings you'd find. Uh, You'd find this heading, local shudder under international pressure. Uh, this was not a good time to be a wealthy man in Israel. Tribes were pressed together between two strong enemies. The, the Ammonites were on the east and the Philistines were on the west. You didn't want to have money and you wanted to hoard it and hide it if you had it. Another heading would read, um, private fence sales are on the rise. Now, they didn't have fences back then, but I'm being overly creative. Everybody basically was on their own. It was every man for himself. Stay on your side of the fence. Um, Every man did what was right in his own eyes, Judges tells us. And then another heading says, uh, Shiloh ranks first in spiritual corruption. Uh, Shiloh was the center of religious activity at the time, and the high priest's sons were using their position and their power uh, to feast on their fleshly appetites and were turning the house of the Lord into a house of prostitution, not of prayer, it was a bad time to be a worshiper of God. But yet in this context, it's no excuse for Elkanah, but he does shine out as a good and godly man. If, if anything, it's surprising that Hannah got such a man. Now, how does this good and godly man come to Hannah in her moment of intense spiritual need and Great spiritual distress. How does Elkanah minister to her? Like a bumbling husband. Look, verse 8. There are many things Elkanah could have said, but he says this. Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Now, I suppose, in one sense, give them points for trying. I mean, that's what all of the husbands are nudging their wives right now and saying, hey, he tried. He, was, he, he noticed she had a problem. I mean, isn't, doesn't that count for something? 
But in another sense, uh, your silence, Elkanah, would have been wiser. This is one of those, uh, this is one of those get well cards from Job's friends. Ah, not a good idea. Uh, and Elkanah's comforts probably hurt Hannah the most because they reveal what he, he can't say. He can't say, aren't you worth more to me than ten sons? He, he can't say that. Can't say that. Why? Because he's flawed. Because he's weak. Because he's good and godly, yes, but he's still sin-stained. He's given in to the pressure of his social context that surrounds him. Instead of trusting in the Lord, he's, he's trusting in another wife to solve his problem. And in, in many ways, he's just like Hannah. And I imagine he's just like you. Flawed. You can say whatever you want about your circumstances, but one way or the other, you and, and your sin are a part of it. And, and here's where the tension rises before us, and here also is where things get particularly interesting. Hannah's life, her circumstances beyond her control, and, and her and Elkanah's response to these challenges have brought them lower and lower and lower, and, and Hannah can't take it anymore. And in her lowness, she goes to her last chance of hope. The tabernacle in Shiloh, after they had eaten, verse 9 says, and, and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and, and wept bitterly. All of Hannah's pain from this problem was actually leading her to the place that she most needed to be. She is in a humble state. She is in a disgraceful state. She is in a needy state. And, and she doesn't care about what other people think about her. As a matter of fact, she has amazing freedom before God. She prays to the Lord with all of her needs before her as if God cares for her and listens to her. As if her problems matter to God. Her ache is real. And listen to this. Her, her ache is especially real, not because she doesn't know theology, but because she does. You ever struggle because you know God? Yeah, some people struggle because they don't know God, but some people struggle because they do. They know the God that they follow and the God that they worship. For, for example, Psalms gives us plenty of pictures of people that struggle because they know things. Psalm 13 says this, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O oh Lord, my God. Lift up, lift up my eyes, lest I should sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. 
My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Sometimes pain is painful because of who God is. And that's what we see Hannah actually struggling with. Um, Hannah actually was also good and godly. Uh, Hannah was sin-stained, but yes, a woman of God nonetheless. She was hoping in the Lord of hosts. She, she is clinging to God as her rock of salvation. She is holding fast to God because there is no other God beside him. That's what she says in her prayer in chapter 2, where she says, two, chapter 2, verse 2, where she says, There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. That's what she believes. And she is holding to this personal God who makes promises and covenants to her people and is struggling. Let's, let's read her prayer in verse 11 of 1 Samuel 1. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Now, once again, pointing back to her, the way she refers to God, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of total resources, complete universal command, the God who in her mind even she may be even saying, O Lord who has ordained this life for me. And she says, remember me. Uh, You could say, be mindful of me. Act in a certain way on my behalf. Now, she's not suggesting that in some way the Lord has forgotten about her. Oh, sorry, Hannah, I forgot about you. Thank you for reminding me that you're barren. I don't know how that slipped through my fingers. She's not doing that. This is Yahweh covenant language. This is the way um, the Lord is referred to back in Exodus when Israel is in their moment of deepest distress. They're in slavery, in bondage. They seem to have forgotten about the Lord, maybe. And it's not that they work their way back to God, but it's that God remembers them. In Exodus 2.24, And God heard their groanings, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. That's how Hannah is praying. And to use anthropomorphic uh, language or an expression, it's almost as if God has been waiting for this moment to act. Why? Because Hannah is weak. And he wants his power to be displayed in Hannah's weakness. And sometimes in our weakness is is the best time for God's power to be displayed. And sometimes in our weakness, we are in the best spot to receive his gifts. Because we don't hang on to them like we used to. Because we know that God is trustworthy. God will provide. He provided this. I think he can provide for me. And... Hannah's prayer is a vow, by the way. A vow is always a free will thing. Uh, God never commanded Israel to make vows. God legislated it, but it wasn't commanded. It was a free act of worship, a free promise to God, um, so to speak. And, And it brings up the question, should we make vows 
And then I would encourage you to remember that narrative is reporting, not prescribing. Um, and the lesson of Hannah is certainly not, hey, if you have a problem, just make a vow to the Lord and he'll solve it for you. That's clearly not what our text is wanting us to take away from this. In fact, when we get into the New Testament and we look at vows, we hear Jesus himself says, don't make vows. Why? Well, because in Jesus' day, people were, were making vows to impress God, to impress other people around them. It was almost like, like how, how swearing works in our day and age. You don't have real power unless you attach a vow to it. But, but Jesus says, hey, all of your words matter. All of the things you say you're going to do matter before God. Don't be a man or a woman who has to vow to be believed. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Also, don't put the Lord to the test. Believe him, hope in him, worship him. I I think Jesus would say this is the prayer that he wants. He says it would be like this. Oh, Father in heaven. I plead with you to take this problem away. If you take it away, I will live for you and I will worship your holy name. But even if you don't, I will still live for you and I will still worship your holy name. You are my God. Your way is always perfect. And if you solve this problem in this life, or the next, it doesn't matter to me. You deserve my praise. What was the specific nature of Hannah's vow? Well, it was a Nazarite vow. Uh, no razor shall touch his head. It's, it's a life totally dedicated, set apart, holy to God. Uh, Nazarite vows, though, usually weren't for life. Uh, when we see them talked about in numbers, we, we see a kind of a limit on them, no more than 30 days. And, and, and the, the individual who took the Nazarite vow would let their hair grow, like Samson, uh, a symbol of unimpaired strength. And he'd also not drink any wine or grapes that in some way kind of set him aside from the land of Canaan. He was set apart, for, or she was set apart for the Lord's service. Um, that's the prayer she prays. Lord, I want, I want to worship you. Now, notice something about this prayer. It actually it doesn't solve her problem. If anything, it causes another one. And this is where we find our, our next heading, our next character that prances into Hannah's life. We find a blind priest. A blind priest. Uh, verse 12 continues, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli, you remember Eli, observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Verse 9 tells us that Eli was sitting, um, sitting at the the tabernacle that they had set up in Shiloh. This was the position of honor. This was the position of authority. And for all of his clout and for all of his, his high station in life, he had nothing to offer to Hannah spiritually. All he saw was a drunken woman. And, and you know, this is real rich coming from a dad like Eli, too. Because you read in, in chapter 2, verse 12 and 17, that his sons were wicked horribly wicked. Eli has a great perception on 
Hannah? I think not. He has no spiritual perception. And by the end of his life, he can't see at all. It's almost as if the, the, the author of 1 Samuel is, is trying to make a kind of a hint to us. He's blind, but not just physically. He is spiritually blind. He cannot see individuals before him. And, and by the way, this, this kind of shows us one of the themes of 1 Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel. It's this question that we, we, we answer every time we encounter any character in 1 Samuel. Does this person have the right stuff? Uh, does this person have uh, something that the Lord is going to work with and use, or are they going to fall flat? Now, Eli, politically and socially, seemed to have it all, right? Yet, he doesn't see his true spiritual condition, and, and in fact, he exalts the wicked, his sons, and he rebukes the helpless, Hannah. We, we see in verse 3, that his sons are just kind of inserted into the narrative, just randomly. Uh, when, when it talks about Elkanah going to worship year by year to the Lord of hosts, the Shiloh where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Now, one commentator remarks at this expression because it's kind of an awkward expression. It's not the priests of the Lord. It's intentionally kind of diminishing their position, almost as if he's trying to say they were just acting as priests of the Lord. They were just figureheads for the Lord. They weren't the real priests of the Lord. Eli was blind to his own spiritual problems, to the spiritual problems of others. And, and who, who do we see in Hannah? We see great weakness, considered worthless by outside eyes. Nobody's expecting anything to come from this woman, so to speak. And yet she goes to God in her weakness and as a result, she has more power and more spiritual might than the greatest religious figure in the land because she has the listening ear of the Lord of hosts. She's like Jonathan. She's like David. She's got the right stuff. And verse 15 goes on to show Hannah. She says, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Once again, all of Hannah's pain have actually brought her to the place she needs to be most. And surprise, surprise, in spite of Eli's spiritual ineptitude and blindness, God uses Eli in this moment. Verse 17, look at how Hannah's problem resolved. Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. And then what happened next? We, we see in verse 19, they arose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house in Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, referring to uh, a maritable intimacy. And then we see again the Lord 
remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. Of course, she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The Lord remembered her. Once again, covenant language. This is God moving forward with his covenant purposes. This is why we came to 1 Samuel. God is acting on those eternal purposes that he has planned all along to establish a kingdom to fulfill his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He is remembering a woman. And and by the way, we, we have here what I like to call a caveat of encouragement. A caveat of encouragement. God shows covenant faithfulness and loyalty to Hannah through receiving and listening to the weakest of human priests. Think about that. I've, every time I read 1 Samuel, I am so puzzled by this and disturbed. God, why did you use that man? Well, it's a, a lesser to greater sort of argument. You understand lesser to greater arguments let me let me remind you a few of them if you like mcdonald's then you will probably love in and out i don't care if uber delivers or not in and out's going to be better Another illustration, um, growing up in the middle of Minnesota, I didn't have the impressive amusement parks that you guys have nearby. Well, you guys were growing up on Disneyland. I was growing up on Paul Bunyan land. It had a huge roller coaster. To my six-year-old mind, it must have been a whole 15 feet long. Its haunted house actually wasn't that frightening. Matter of fact, for that reason, my brother and I decided to start going through it backwards to scare people more effectively. Uh, But it did have its magic. I mean, there was this three-story tall animatronic Paul Bunyan who somehow, to my amazement, greeted us by name when we entered the park. How did he know my name? Paul Bunyan spoke to me. It wasn't so magical. His animatronic jaw was a little bit off, but it was still pretty magical. But but the the argument is like this. If you like Paul Bunyan land, you're going to love Walt Disney land. Everything is in sync. The roller coaster is fun. The characters you actually recognize... In, in, in 1 Samuel, this is the same kind of argument that we have here. If you like the encouragement uh, from Eli's office as a high priest, you'll love the security and the encouragement that comes from Christ as our perfect and continual priest in heaven. Hey, if, if God listens to a priest like Eli to fulfill his covenant purposes, how much more... Is he going to listen to a high priest like Jesus who is perfect and prays according to his will continually? How much more is God going to listen to a high priest like that to complete his covenant purposes in me and in you? And just in case you're 
you're wondering. Uh, Hebrews 7.26 talks about how Jesus is perfect. Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus saves to the uttermost. Or you could say he saves to perfection. Why? Because he is always living to intercede for you. 1 John 2.1 says Christ's position is of specific encouragement to believers who struggle with sin. We have an advocate in heaven, Jesus Christ the righteous. And Romans 8 Romans 8, (laughs) verse 34 says this, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, we are Uh, For your sake, being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We we never face condemnation from God. Uh, Our present circumstance is never the result of God's wrath. How do we know this? Because Christ Jesus is the one who died for all of our sins past, present, and future, and who is raised, who is indeed interceding for us, nothing can separate us from him. That's a caveat of encouragement. Well, like God's patience with Eli, time is running out. So we'll summarize the rest of our passage in 1 Samuel. Um, you see in 1 Samuel 1, 21 through 28, that uh, Hannah br- does fulfill her vow. She brings Samuel back to Eli at Shiloh after a period of time, but she brings him back. In fact, it says in verse 27, For this is the child that I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And, and he worshiped the Lord there. And then we see in in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 all the way through verse 11, we see this song of Hannah. And once again, we we see this incredible, fantastic, and rich theology that that floods her soul. And this really serves as a theological preamble, so to speak, to the whole book of 1 and 2 Samuel. Verse 2, like I read to you before, there is no rock like our God. The the word rock shows up again in 2 Samuel 22, 3, in 2 Samuel 22, 47, in 2 Samuel 23, 3. It's bookending the books. There's no rock like the Lord. God is seen as glorious in this song. God is seen as sovereign. God is seen as powerful in our weakness. And God is particularly powerful in this song to move forward with his kingdom purposes even in our weaknesses. And and God is moving for his earthly king. Verse 10 says this, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he shall thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his his anointed. Hannah had rich theology, rich eschatology, rich trust in a sovereign God, and she praises him for it. Now, as I said in the introduction, this narrative does serve, in my mind, as kind of the opening credits uh, 
to the preview of great things to come. What is the message of this opening credits preview? Well, it's, it's this. God delights to use improbable circumstances and weak people to move forward with his powerful kingdom program. God delights to use improbable circumstances and powerless people to move forward with his powerful kingdom program. What is God's kingdom program? Well, it's his plan that began, unsurprisingly enough, with a childless couple later in their life who he told to go to a new country and start a nation through which he would bless the world. That is Abraham. And we see improbable circumstances in people. God doesn't wait just like with, with Hannah, God doesn't wait for the people of Israel in the book of 1 Samuel to sort of pull themselves together and start glorifying God on, on their own before he comes down and sets up a kingdom. He, they aren't able to on their own. And, and we see the longer they are left to themselves, like the book of Judges says, the worse it gets. But God delights to do this. It's, it's almost like this is God's M.O., He sometimes intentionally seems to wait till we are at the end of our ropes, the end of ourselves. He he ordains Israel to taste the weakness of slavery. He ordains Hannah to taste the bitterness of her irritation and inability. He ordains a king like Saul to show the people the fruit of their heart's desire. He ordains ordains that David, that character we'll run into later in this book, is the runt of the family who never gets to go play uh, Philistines and Israelites with his big brothers. He ordains that Jonathan and Saul will have only the only two swords in all of Israel so that Jonathan will have to drive out the Philistines with just one sword along with his armor bearer where Saul is left shaking in his camp. Why does he delight to ordain these things? Well, it's not because God delights in punishment. It's not that God has this thing for just weak people there there are lots of weak people on earth that don't have god on their side there are a lot of weak people that haven't surrendered their hearts to god who are still doing their own things who have not humbled their hearts and are not trusting in christ alone it's not just about weak people it's about a certain kind of weak people why does god delight to use a certain kind of weak people like this well he delights in you seeing his power and his glory alone. He delights in you being totally separated from any power on your own so that you can see and worship God alone. He delights in weak people because they see themselves right spiritually and they may just maybe be beginning to see God right spiritually. God delights to use people like this because, well, when we are strong... We tend to trust ourselves, right? We tend to look at the size of our shields, the the length of our spears, the weight of our swords, our tanks, our battleships. We tend to trust our 401ks, our wit, our looks, our power. We easily tend to do that when we are strong. Strong people, as Paul would say in 1 Timothy 6, 17 about rich people, uh, tend to be haughty. They tend to set their hope on the uncertainty of this world. They tend to not 
trust in God who richly provides us everything to enjoy. Also, we, we see that God often delights to use you and your weakness because he also wants to show you something about you and, and your problem. I mean, think about it. He could have let Israel out of Egypt first day. But instead, he lets them see the power and the might of the Egyptian army collapse around them because he wants to show them something about them. He could have given David to Israel right out of the gates, but he wanted to show Israel their weakness and their human solution. He could have given Samuel right to Hannah, uh, but I doubt Samuel would have turned out the same way. And I doubt Hannah would either. And maybe, maybe God delights to use weak people and circumstances because he really just wants you to sound a whole lot less like Penina and a whole lot more like Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, where it says, where Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecution, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And maybe, lastly, maybe he wants you to learn what John Newton learned when he penned that other hymn that you don't know so well. Uh, It's the hymn, I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow, on number 63. You should turn to it. This is not a hint. John Newton says this, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I, I, I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sin and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, yea, more with his own hand he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I'd schemed, blasted my gourds, and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will thou pursue thy worm to death? "'Tis in this way,' the Lord replied. "'I answered prayer for grace and faith. "'These inward trials I employ "'from self and pride to set thee free "'and break thy schemes of earthly joy "'that thou may seek thy all in me. Let's pray. Father in heaven.
we are shocked by the people you use. Sometimes you use powerful people more in spite of themselves than because of themselves. We, we are shocked that you would use a humble and weak people like us, but we pray that you would, and we pray that we would have patience of faith to follow you where your hand ordains and where you may lead. I pray for these precious people tonight that they would be encouraged by your word, they'd be satisfied in who Christ is for them, and they'd be bold to live godly lives in pressure. I pray now that you would be honored in our time and fellowship. In your name.